Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing privilege it is, Lord, to, to know your word, to, have, to know your knowledge, Lord, to know your wisdom. What a privilege it is to be able to read in the Bible these things, Father. What a privilege it is, Lord, to, to have your Holy Spirit within us, to, to bring your word to life. And what a privilege it is, Lord, to know that as we pray right now that you're here, that you're listening to us, that you're hearing everything we say. What a privilege, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Wow, this feels really weird to me. Normally, I'm kind of hidden behind the computer over there, where my wife is sitting at the moment, um, controlling the slides, and, and that feels much more comfortable than... Um, facing everybody on this side. But anyway, my name's Tom Johnston, if you don't know me. Um, I'm one of the elders at Connect, and I, I have a special um, responsibility for, for Musenberg, and that's normally where I am. Um, either that or I'm at the 8 o'clock service, um, where I was assigned to do the PowerPoints for the, for the worship there. They, they felt that it was more a age-appropriate service for me to go to. But anyway, um, Alan, that was an awesome time of worship. Thanks so much. That was very special. It was as though you had known what I was going to, to, to speak about today. Every single song just connected. Kind of the, the, the quiz at the end is to match, them, match each song, okay? <laughs> but that, that song, The Reason, is just awesome. It really, really is. Um, John has asked me to, to preach on um, Nehemiah 1 to 8. And it's really about caring enough to do something. Um, Howard last week, I think most of you would have um, probably been here, gave a very challenging sermon. Um, and, and really it's now what I'm going to be talking about is to actually care enough to be able to do something. Um, and I just think that Nehemiah is just the perfect model um, for us. In fact, I can remember many, many, many years ago when I was at university, um, just thinking that Nehemiah should be a set book, set reading for those who go into business. Um, because everything he did, just from project management to managing resources to managing people, is just so perfect. And I know that Howard will probably go on next week and talk about that. But essentially, you know, I'm going to be talking about how, how Nehemiah modeled caring enough for us. And just in case, just to give you a quick bit of background, um, Nehemiah lived about... 516 BC, um, and he lived at a time after the, 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 the Jews in Judah were, were basically taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and um, they were there for about 70 years, and I think it was um, King, King, Z King Cyrus who felt it, was, felt it upon his heart to say, go back and you can build your temple. Um, and he not only, you know, let them go back to build the temple, but he, he also gave them the finances, he gave them money, he, he, gave, them the, he gave them livestock, and he even gave them back the, the, the stuff that had been looted out of the, out of the temple. Then after a while, the, they, they stopped building the temple um, because the neighbors complained about it. Um, and, uh, and they really felt that the Jews could become a problem again. But then after two years, they allowed them to, con allowed them to continue. 
And then Artaxerxes, you know, basically decreed that Ezra could return and anybody who wished could go back to Jerusalem as well. Now, Artaxerxes was one of the most powerful, powerful kings um, on earth, on the known earth at that particular time. And if you have a look at the kingdom of the Persian kingdom, it kind of extends right across in the east to the Hindu Kush, um, to the north, to what I think is now Georgia and Azerbaijan, and to the east there is some debate as to whether they, they got to Greece or not, but it was massive. They, they, got, they couldn't go much further south because unfortunately there was an ocean in the way. Um, and Saudi Arabia wasn't really worth wandering into at that stage, they didn't know about oil. And so they, they kind of stopped there. Um, but such a powerful man, to be in his presence, you know, was absolutely awesome. It was a bit like having President Trump and, and President Xi from China and Theresa May all bound up into one person. And to, to serve them was absolutely amazing. You had to, you know, really felt that you were in a special position. And what happens now, I'm going to focus on the first eight verses of Nehemiah 2, which was just a sliver of time, but which was very, very important, in fact, to the Jews and to us to this day. Um, and it was a time when Nehemiah lived and he cared very, very deeply um, about God. And that's, that's very, very clear. He not only cared about, about um, God, but he also cared about his people very much. And at the end of, of chapter 1, which is where I think Howard got to last week, there's a segue into chapter 2 where he, it just simply says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer wasn't just somebody who tasted the wine and if he died, didn't give it to the king. He, he basically was somebody who was very, had to be very trustworthy, who was very close to the king, and um, he had to have a very wide knowledge of, of Persian food and the way food was put together. And he had to understand Persian culture. I mean, he was a very, it was a very important position. It was a servant position. But essentially, you know, he, he occupied a role which was critical to the king. But he had to be very, very careful because if he annoyed the king or he displeased the king in any way, that was it. You know, he would be banished at best and slaughtered at worst. Now, the scene in chapter 2 opens um, in the king's winter castle in the Persian city of Susa, which is at the foot of the Zagros Mountains. And it's about, if you look at the map, it's about, in fact, I, I know it precisely, it's 1,365 kilometers away from Jerusalem. I measured it on, on Google Earth which is about the same distance that Cape Town is from Johannesburg. So it's a long way away when they, when they went back. And I think this is the same city that, um, that, that Esther um, lived in, where she was, it was like a beauty pageant, I suppose, with King Xerxes. He sort of looked around at all the women and chose the one who he wanted to join his concubine. And we know that eventually she went on to, um, to, to become queen and to basically save the Jews in that country. And it's probably quite likely that Esther and Nehemiah were contemporaries at the time. Um, I'm not sure that, that she's the queen that's mentioned later on in, in Nehemiah, but it is possible she was there. So let's look at the next scripture we're going to go into. 
in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king said to me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah said, I was very afraid. Now, the month of Nisan is, in the Jewish calendar, is um, spring. Now, you may may not recall that <clears throat> when Nehemiah's brother visited him to tell him about the condition of Jerusalem, it was Kislev, which is autumn. So it was about four months between the point that he was told about Jerusalem to this particular event. And during that time, it's highly likely that Nehemiah had prayed and listened very closely to God um, at the time. And he, we know he fasted as well. So clearly he was pa patiently waiting and listening. Um, let me, we know that he goes on and he looked sad. Now, nobody was supposed to look sad in the presence of the king because it was a privilege serving somebody as great as that. Um, it was such an honor. And not being joyful in his presence would be disrespectful. And so, you know, he had every reason to be afraid. But if you, if you look at it, it, this seems to suggest that Nehemiah and the king had a very close relationship. I mean, the king's life in many respects depended on Nehemiah making sure that the food was not poisoned. And it's quite likely that the, the king intuitively knew that there was something wrong with Nehemiah. Um, what Nehemiah did next was something of immense courage and faith, actually. Right, let's look and see what he said next. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? May the king live forever. Clearly, he was saying to Nehemiah, I respect you enormously. I recognize that you, Nehemiah, have been, I mean you, Artaxerxes, have been appointed by God to rule. Um, and so he's making that quite clear. But then he says, but there's something even bigger than you that's troubling me. Um, it's uh, where the city where my fathers lie buried or is in ruins. So he was sort of, it could have been disrespectful. It really could have. Um, but he is saying there's something really immensely important. Right, let's go on and look at the next one. And the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, well, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Well, you know, if you take a look at that, what is it you want? The king was really saying, well, you know, can I help? So clearly, God had opened his heart. And you suddenly realize that the timing of this was absolutely perfect. Um, well, not surprisingly, you can just, I could just imagine Nehemiah taking a huge gulp and then sort of praying madly, just quickly saying, well, I'm in this situation, you, I'm, I'm in it, now it's up to you, Lord. And he must have had a huge amount of faith because this was dangerous. And in many respects, taking a leap of faith involves risk. And clearly, he did it, but he did it in obedience to God. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long, will it, how long will your journey take, and when will you come back? It pleased the king to send me. 
so I set a time. Now that timing was perfect. I mean, one, the queen being present at the, at the king's table um, probably implied that this was quite an intimate meal. The queen wasn't normally there, so there probably couldn't have been a lot of, a lot of people around. But I could imagine when he said this, the room would have gone deadly quiet because this was, you know, really out of, out of turn that ne what Nehemiah was actually saying. But he dived in and he must have told him it was going to take about a year or two and he'd be back. And we know that it took miraculously 52 days to build the wall and that he then went back and then he returned for 12 years as the governor of Trans-Euphrates. So, I mean, God was at work here, really and truly. Um, okay. I also said to him, I mean, not only, not only has he just said, can I go away, he now doesn't, he's not shy. He says, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asap, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residences, uh, the residence I'm going to occupy. I mean, he wasn't shy. You know, he, he, he didn't want just building material. He wanted the very best building material. He wanted the king's um, timber. So, you know, he, he really leapt in. But clearly, what this tells us is that Nehemiah had a plan and that that plan um, wasn't Nehemiah's plan. Clearly, we can see it wasn't because you can see God's hand here. This was God's plan. He had spent the, um, the four months praying, actually listening to God, and he knew precisely what he wanted to do. And he said, and this is clear because what he says next, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the God granted me my request. So that's the, I think that's, that's verse 8. So we've got to the, bit, the end of the bit that I want to say. But I want to talk about or preach on. Um, but what this actually reminds me of is of John 12:49, where Jesus says, For I didn't speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say and how to say it. That's precisely what Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah cared deeply, deeply for his God. And he cared deeply, deeply for his people. Um, and rather than sort of sitting around morosely saying, oh, Lord, it's just so lame that my city is in ruins, rather than sitting around morosely in sort of a slough of depression, he actually prayed and said, I'm here. Can I do something about it? So how do we bring all this together? One, Nehemiah loved God. Nehemiah cared about the city. And don't remember, a city isn't just buildings. It's people. So he cared deeply about the people. And he prayed and he listened to God. And the, the parallels between this and what I want to say next um, is there for you to try and put it together. So I'm going to speak about four principles which, um, which I think you know, are important to me in my life, and I'm going to share it with you. And I'll try and see, show you how this ties in with Nehemiah. So the first principle that I want to talk about is from Mark, and it's the one I think we all know. And that's one of the first links, Alan, to one of your songs. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength 
And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, loving your God means that you've got to get to know God. You've got to really intimately connect with him. Because if you don't, if you sit back and you're remote, you don't get to know them. When, when what, 39 years ago, Jackie, <laughs> when I first met you, um, for me, it was love at first sight, and I'm not sure it was the case in Jackie's case, but, but I just knew immediately that this was the lady I was going to marry. And I just wanted to get to know her, and it was quite strange. Um, I'd hardly known her. I'd met her in the charge office of a police station. Very strange place. <laughs> But, but I just wanted to get to know. I wanted to spend every waking moment with her to, to get to know her and, and just understand how she thinks and how she, how she was. And to understand, and then when she clearly reciprocated with love, I wanted to know why. <laughs> what is it about me? <laughs> you know, so it was quite important to me to get close to her. And it's the same thing with God. What is it about? You know, I just want to know so much about God. I want to steep myself in his word. And sometimes the word isn't enough. You know, you've got to really ask the Holy Spirit to really speak to you and get into you. And, and that's, that's what it is. You need to spend time with God to know him. As soon as you do that, you begin to understand what it is in yourself that God is actually loving. Suddenly you realize that you're not the sort of person you really think you are. And, and so many of us will find it difficult to love our neighbor as ourselves because we don't love ourselves. You know, so many of us, you know, feel guilty or we just feel rotten and we're not good enough. We've often been told that sometimes. Um, but the fact is, God created us. And I just looked at that beautiful baby this morning and I just loved her. She just was so gorgeous. And I suddenly thought, you know, that is just perfect creation, just so wonderful. And what happens is that you're born into a world which is sinful. And, you know, so you just can't help it. And sometimes you allow the world to impact on you. And, and slowly you begin to not love yourself. And that's one of the biggest lies of Satan. And that's what he uses so many times. And we really do need to love ourselves, but not what the world sees within us, but what God sees within us. You know, and it's something I, I often say about, about the angels. Every single time when the angels came to earth, the first thing they had to say is, don't be afraid, because these are awesome creatures. And we do know that we are made above the angels. And so we do know that we're probably more beautiful and awesome than they. And I just all the time want to know what it is, what it is that God created in me. What is my identity in God? And that is important as a Christian to know. Once I do that, it becomes very easy to slip into the second part of Jesus' command, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself, because then you begin to realize that God has created something beautiful in everybody, and therefore it is easy to actually love them as well. So the sequence of this command is critical in my mind, and that is you love the God first, with all your heart, and then it's easy to slip into the next one. Now, we know that this is a critical command. Jesus told us that it was, and he basically said all the laws and the prophets hang on this command. So, I'm going to 
yeah, I just want to ask one, I'm not going to ask, so ask a question, but it's a rhetorical question. You know, why was Nehemiah so concerned about the walls of Jerusalem? And the reason that he was, was because the people were vulnerable and open to attack from the outside. So building the walls was absolutely critical to the security and safety of the people there. And that brings me on to the second principle I want to talk about, and that is the gospel. Now, often when you ask people, what is the gospel? The good news, in other words, people will say, well, it's Jesus has died for my sins. And, and that's quite correct, he did. But it's so much more than that. It's much more than that. The gospel, <coughs> the good news is that the kingdom was brought to earth. And that's the good news. So many people sit at the bottom of the cross and never actually move into the kingdom and act in the kingdom. And it's critical that, that we do that. And here, here I've, I've, I've got some, some verses there. He, it, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He also said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's talking about himself in the midst of the people. And then he said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so what Jesus did was to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. Right, and then that moves me on to the third principle. This is a bit like downloading software into your computer. You can watch it going, so we're kind of 75% there. Okay, so not only that, but we're told by Jesus to continue the work of Jesus, to continue the work of Jesus here on earth, and that is to continue extending the kingdom of God. And just to give you some verses, and it's all over the Bible, this, whoever believes in me will do the work I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And I've got many, many more scriptures which I can give you. He has told us, Jesus gave us the power, Jesus gave us the authority to actually continue working and extending the kingdom of God here on earth. And in a sense, what we're doing is we're not building the walls, we're moving the walls outward all the time by what we do. So, here are some key kingdom principles. Je Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth, and we mandated and we're empowered to continue his ministry. And through our caring love for those around us who are at risk, we are to act and do something and extend the kingdom on earth. People are at risk. They're at risk of going into hell. So that should deeply concern us. And so we should be doing everything that we possibly can to extend the kingdom of God and bring people into it. And then, okay, let me just do some quick comparisons between this and Nehemiah. So Nehemiah loved God deeply. He loved his people and was deeply troubled. And he prayed and he listened to God and he acted. Part of the problem is, is that we don't act. We don't do anything. And um, how is it that we can actually react to a need? How often people do. You know, we do nothing simply because we just feel that 
you know, the world is so full of problems and we just feel overwhelmed with it and we do, don't do anything. Or we do nothing, simply we, we kind of think, oh, that's so lame, that's so sad, I'm really, this is awful, and then we continue with our life. We do nothing because we say, well, it's not my ministry, it's not my gifting to do it. You know, I've got other gifts and I will operate in other, other areas. And then you do nothing. Um, you do nothing and you outsource the problem. So actually, I won't make it my problem. I'll pay money to somebody. I'll pay money to a pastor and they can actually do it. Or I'll, I'll give it to an NGO and they, they actually do it. Or one of the ones that annoys me quite often is people will want to, won't do anything because they're waiting for a sign you know, it's a special message or a prophecy before they'll actually do it, um, you know, and then they do nothing. But what you can do is you can actually say and do something and say, here I am, God, what can I do? You make yourself available to God and then basically say to him, what can I do? Now, you can see Nehemiah did that. He was deeply troubled. And he basically in, for four months said, God, here I am. What is it that I can actually do? And that really brings me into the fourth and final principle I want to talk about. And that is around having a servant heart. I'm just going to read this. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over you, over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is critical that we have a servant heart. You know, we can love God with all our heart, and we can love our neighbor as ourselves. But if we don't have that servant heart, we're just going to sit around doing nothing. And as we get to know God, as we begin to love him more, so we should be developing a servant heart that... When we see something, we want to act and do it. And if you take a look at, at Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah was a servant. That's what he was. He served Artaxerxes, and then he went on to serve God, and he went on to serve God's people. And, and servanthood must be based on genuine servanthood. It, it's not forced. It shouldn't be forced. It shouldn't be done out of a sense of duty. It shouldn't be done out of a sense of guilt. And not because you want to please God, but because you genuinely have a servant heart. And you can't really serve God until you know your own identity in God. And it's so important to do that. As you do that, as, it is, as, as you know what it is that God has built into you, you know how you can begin serving God. And that's why you need to, to get close to God. That servant heart is absolutely critical, and it means demonstrating love all the time and making people feel God's love all the time. You know, it's very, very seldom. In fact, I know nobody who's been argued into heaven or who, who has been debated into heaven, but I know people who have experienced God's love feel safe, and they can move easily into, into heaven. You really need to demonstrate God's love to people. I think it was, it, it's, a, it's a saying that is um, attributed to Mayor Ang Angelo, but it's actually Karl Buchner who said it, um, who wasn't the greatest theologian, but what he said, um, you know, means a lot to me, and I don't think you throw the, 
baby out of the bathwater. I think it's very important. He said, they may, they may forget what you say, but they will never forget how you made them feel. You know? I mean, I can still to this day remember the fear that my maths teacher in Form 2 made. made. I remember nothing of the maths he taught me. You know, it, it, is, it is very, very important. But, you know, the fact is, I don't think you should overwork it um, and sort of continually look for needs. God brings the needs to you, you know. You, when you take a look at the example of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan basically stumbled across the person who um, was robbed and beaten up. And that's what happens. The, the needs are there all the time. You've just got to have that servant heart and react to it. And, and here I'm just going to give you some examples from my own life, which... Um, which is, I keep, I, I go back to it and think, you know, I, I really don't think that, that God is going to give me a list of the things, needs I've got to attend to. He just brings them into my life. And I can remember the one which was, in, which was amazing, um, Winifred and Hildegard, I don't know if you remember Barry Funnel in Malawi. Um, th they were translators, they were translating the Bible into Senna, and they adopted a, a young boy, and this young boy was kidnapped. Um, and it was the most awful couple of days I've ever experienced. Two thugs came into, into their garden. Well, Barry, Barry is paraplegic and he's in a wheelchair and basically snatched Timmy away from him. He tried hard to hold on to Timmy, but he realized that Timmy's limbs were going to be broken if he continued to hold on. And so he had to release Timmy, which was one of the most awful things he had to do in his life. And Timmy disappeared with these two, two men. They jumped into a car and they came immediately around to our house. I think we were the closest people to them at the time. And Barry had blood all over him, I can remember. And they just said, Timmy's been kidnapped. And we immediately connected that with the possibility that his biological father had tried to get him back. And so I remember jumping into the car and just praying to God, what do we do? And I, I knew that there was a, the, the flight to Johannesburg left Chileka Airport at, at 2 o'clock. So I thought, I bet you he's going to try and fly him out of the country. So I rushed to Chileka Airport and I managed to, and God just opened doors. I mean, I got to the police. They, they allowed me to go through immigration and customs onto the airplane and look at every child on the air, air, aircraft and I realized Timmy wasn't there. So I was really despondent and I, can, and I was praying as I walked back and I was standing on the steps. And there was a, a chap walked up to me. I think his name was Barry Brown. And he said to me, do you know Barry and Julie? I said, yes, I do. I do know them. He said, is there a problem? So I said, yes, there is a problem. Timmy's been kidnapped. So he said, well, what do you think we should do? So I said, what would be good if we could get onto Malawi Broadcasting Corporation and just put out a, a notification that this child has been kidnapped. Can people look for it? He said, yeah, I can do that awesome. Um, and he said, well, what else should we say? Should we offer a reward? So I said, yeah, let's offer a reward. And the figure of 50,000 kwacha came to my mind. And so I said, yeah, offer 50,000 kwacha for the return of Timmy. So Barry disappeared. And for that whole day, every 30 minutes, this was um, broadcast out. He then came back and he said, what else can we do? So I said, well, it would be quite good if we could have, there was a road which, which didn't, wasn't the main road, it was a back road that went to um, Mwanza, the, the border post. At and, and I just said, we need to put people along that road to look out for Timmy. 
wonder if we can do that. He said, yeah, I can do that. And the next minute, a whole lot of people piled in my car, and we went off and we dropped people off. And so that whole road had people watching over it. Then later that evening, he said, he suddenly reappeared again and said, what can we do? So I said, it would be really good in case they went the other way. Let's try and see if we can put people into Mozambique at Zobwe. He said, I can do it. I was beginning to get used to it now. And that night, we went and put people at Zobwe. So the radio was going, um, the, the road was being watched. So Timmy could not have gone out of, out of Blantyre at that time. Jackie had had a, had a prompting to go off to immigration, and she went. She managed to catch them just as they were going off for the weekend, and asked them to watch all the border posts. So we locked uh, Malawi down, and then after two days, nothing happened. Um, lots of people came, and lots of people had promptings to do things, and I was getting very frustrated. We couldn't get the police to to really act properly, and. Barry Brown appeared again and said, you know, what can we do now? So I said it would be really good if we could get the police to actually operate and do something about this. So he said, I think I can do something. So he, so he said, no, I actually know the president. <laughs> and he went to President Malusi at the time and got the presidential guard, which is the elite force in Malawi. Um, and they went through, we by that stage had a very good idea where Timmy was being kidnapped, had been, was being held. Um, we had an ex-SAS soldier um, sort of sneak in and watch and was able to pick it up. It was just an amazing series of events. And finally, that night after they had gone through this particular township, Timmy was found um, and returned. And what we subsequently found out afterwards was that the, it, was a, it was a basically a gangster in Malawi called Mweta who had been paid 50,000 kwacha, or was offered 50,000 kwacha to return to, to take Timmy and kidnap him and take him through to Tet in Mozambique, which was the exact amount of money that we offered as a reward. And clearly what he did, he thought, I can't get this child out of here, but I can still make money out of it, and it's the exact same amount. And Timmy was returned. But, you know, what, what was amazing about that is that none of us actually really had to go out of our way because Barry Brown would appear or something else would appear. Jackie had a prompting to go to immigration. And it, was, we just, it just happened. And there was no overworking it. We were able to actually do what was clearly God's plan, and that was to return Timmy um, to them. And, and that's how it should be, you know, just standing there, God will bring something in front of you. And you just, with a servant heart, say, here I am. And just every little act of kindness, every little, little, little thing that you do that demonstrates love is pushing that, that kingdom border out further and further. And one last little story, <laughs> it's a quick one. But, and sorry, I'm not trying to make myself look good, but it's the only stories I know is what has happened to me, and it's important to me. But remember, I was going to um, buy some Biltong in Constantia Village. And um, one of the ladies there, she was And I went around there and I said, I have you, and she said, no, what did you do? And then, so, there's something in my heart that said, 
there's a problem. At that point, she just burst into tears. <laughs> I took a step back and thought, whoa. Um, and she had had a really awful racial incident from a customer about 10 minutes before I got there, and she was deeply, deeply hurt. And so I just spent time with her, and just she just felt and experienced God's love. And, you know, I don't think that there was an immediate conversion, but, you know, sometimes we're just part of God's larger plan. And somebody else might have gone later and spoken to her about God, but I do believe that day I extended God's kingdom slightly further, which I think is quite awesome. Um, I'm going to, to end now, um, and I'm going to end by a song, and I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. <laughs> and Alan doesn't know it, so I'm not going to ask him to play the song. But it's a song by, it's a song from uh, Matthew West, and it's called Do Something. And it goes like this. It said, I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now, and thought, how do we ever get down so far? And how's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven, and I thought, God, why didn't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty. Children sold into slavery, and the thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist at heaven and said, God, why don't you do something? And God said, I did. I created you. Okay. Let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just um, recognize that today has been declared um, Earth Day. And Father, when I look around at the creation that's here on earth, I'm just reminded of you so often. Just the magnificence of, of the mountains, just the, the peacefulness of the sea that I saw this morning as the sun was rising over it. And I recognize the power in that ocean, Lord, as, as when there's storms and it smashes against rocks. And Lord, I know the magnificence of your creation out in the stars and just a, a, a creation that is just ever-expanding. And then I look at something small like a bee and just see the little bits and pieces that you've created on that bee and how, how you created mitochondria that sits within each one of our cells, the attention to detail, Lord, how you've created a body that takes the DNA and just builds itself. You are so awesome, and we really do love you, Lord. And Father, I just come before you now and just say, help us, Lord, to, to know who we are, that you you really created and help us Lord to, to love our neighbor and help us Lord to, to get to know you more and to develop that, set, that servant heart and help us Lord not to sit back and do nothing but to do something in Jesus name we pray this Do you mind if we do that new song again? Yeah, we're going to do the new song. Let's stand. <laughs>